The passage before us this morning presents the destiny of the entire human race in the form of two portraits which are set in stunning contrast with one another. Every person who has ever lived from Adam down to the last child to be born before this age comes to a close is found in one or the other of these portraits. Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 19 depicts the scene at the end of the age when all of heaven will burst forth in thunderous praise of God in the aftermath of his judgment upon Babylon, the worldly city, the harlot bride of the beast. Verses 6 to 8 then depicts a similar scene of heavenly worship, yet this time even louder than the first. As the bride of Christ is about to be revealed in all of her pure and radiant splendor and presented to her bridegroom at the marriage supper of the Lamb which will consummate this age and inaugurate the age to come. Every person on the face of this earth, every person on the pages of human history, and every single person in this room is found in one of these two portraits. You are either a part of Babylon, or you are part of the bride. You either belong to the beast, or you are betrothed to the lamb. You will either fall with Babylon in her judgment and be consumed in her fire, Or you will make yourself ready with the bride and enter into the joy of the consummated covenant. Either heaven will rejoice at your destruction because it magnifies the glory of God's righteousness. Or heaven will rejoice at your revelation on the last day because it magnifies the glory of God's grace. The aim of this passage and my aim this morning is that each of you would be found in the second portrait, that of the bride which has made herself ready for the quickly coming day when the bridegroom will appear to take his beloved home to be with him forever. Those who are dressed in the wedding garments and are prepared to meet the bridegroom when he appears. This is a text that calls for self-examination. How do you know which scene describes you? Are you in verses 1 to 5 or are you in verses 6 to 8? Well, there are three descriptions of the saints given in this passage. And my challenge to you this morning is to honestly evaluate which description characterizes you. Are these three descriptions of the saints true of you? And if not, why not? The first scene is really a continuation of the description of the fall of Babylon, which is found in Revelation 18, which we covered last week. You will remember that the core of that chapter, from verses 9 to 19, contains the lament of various peoples of this world who profited from Babylon's idolatrous, immoral, and blasphemous ways. Just let your eyes look over at chapter 18 and follow along with me very quickly. Verse 9, you have the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality 
and lived in luxury with her. They will weep and they will wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Verse 15, the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Verse 17, all the shipmasters and the seafaring men Sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned. Weeping and mourning. That is how the people of this world will react on that day when Babylon falls. Why? Because Babylon supplied them with an abundance of material comforts and sensual pleasures. I mean, sure, she blasphemed the name, of, the name of God and slaughtered His saints, but think of the art, the architecture, the entertainment, the cuisine, the culture, the wealth she possesses and the pleasure she provides. The people of this world will mourn when Babylon falls beneath God's judgment because it means the destruction of everything for which they live and everything which they love. See, in John's day, 1st century A.D., Babylon represented the Rome, a Roman city and the Roman culture. Babylon was Rome. The culture which had spread to all of the cities of the empire. And at the time of John's revelations near the end of the first century AD, Rome was enjoying the very height of her power. But she grew decadent. And she grew debauched. And her power and her influence steadily waned until she eventually fell to the Visigoths from the north and the east in 410 AD. Now, I want you to imagine the differing reactions, if you were, to the people in the first century who would hear the impending news or the news of her impending destruction. To the people of this world, to the pagan citizens of Rome, the destruction of Rome would be the death of a dream. Everything that made Rome great and glorious is now up in flames. The amphitheaters, the markets, the Colosseum, the arches, the great Roman baths, the temples, the forums, the Circus Maximus with its chariot races, the Senate, all of it, rubble and charred ruins. The glory of Rome is gone. Life as they know it is gone. It's no wonder they weep and mourn. The source of their income, the source of their pleasure, the source of their identity, the source of their hope lies in smoldering ruins come 410 A.D. Now put yourself in the shoes of the Christians at the end of the first century who are receiving this revelation from the Apostle John that announces to them the impending fall of Rome. They would have a very different reaction to Rome's fall, wouldn't they? To them, the Colosseum is not some great cultural center of entertainment spectacles. It's the place where your brothers and sisters are sent to be slaughtered by soldiers, mauled by lions, and burned alive to the delight of bloodthirsty crowds. You're not sad when the Colosseum is sacked. 
The temples of Rome are not museums of Roman culture and religion. They are high places of adultery where your God and his Christ are blasphemed day and night. The Roman baths are not hubs of public health and recreation. They are houses of debauchery, often of the homosexual variety. You see Rome, in other words, through very different lenses, through very different spectacles. You see Rome and its fall through God-centered eyes. For example, when we look at the frescoes, the mosaics on the walls that have been unearthed from Pompeii, the city on the western coast of Italy that was buried in volcanic ash in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 A.D., When we look at those frescoes which they're digging out of the ash, we don't see some glorious insight into Roman culture. We see a lascivious celebration of sexual perversion. In fact, it wasn't until the Victorian era ended that they would let anybody but archaeologists view the remnants of Pompeii. When we watch some National Geographic or Travel Channel special that's detailing the animistic tribes of West Africa and it's showing their, um, their rituals where they're gathered around a campfire and they're banging on drums and they're dancing, we don't see a cultural example of West Africa ecstatic dancing and, and a glimpse into their wonderful culture. We see a people who are communing with demons. So the question that I would ask you is, how do you look at Rome? How do you look at Babylon? Through which perspective do you see the city now? And through which perspective do you see her destruction to come? Going back to Revelation 18 and 19, we've seen the reaction of the people of this world to Babylon's fall in verses 9 to 19. Now look at verse 20. And you'll see a very different reaction from the saints, or at least what is commanded of them. The reaction is commanded in verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. And then what is commanded in verse 20 commences in verse 1 of chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. So both the saints, that's the great multitude of verse 1. It's the same group that is gathered around the throne in chapter 7, clothed in white, palm branches in their hand, singing out salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That great multitude is the church triumphant, the church glorified. So both the saints and the heavenly host 
represented by the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they do exactly in verses 1 to 5 what they were commanded to do in chapter 18 and verse 20. They rejoice over Babylon's judgment and they praise God for his righteousness. In fact, three times in this five-verse passage, the saints praise the Lord for his justice and judgment in the threefold hallelujah, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew phrase hallel, which means praise, and yah, which is short for the Lord, praise the Lord. The first declaration of praise offers two reasons why God's judgment of Babylon is true and just. First, God is to be praised for his judgment of Babylon, the great prostitute, because she has corrupted the earth with her her immorality. She has spread her disease of idolatry and sensuality throughout the whole earth. Like a disease-ridden harlot, she has infected everyone who sought pleasure from her bed. That's the image, which points to the reality that every aspect of human civilization has become infected and corrupted by the disease of sin. Art and beauty just like in Pompeii, are corrupted by lust. Commerce and industry are corrupted by greed. The worship of the one true God is rejected in favor of images made by human hands and monuments to the glory of man. God's image in man has been corrupted by sin to the extent that everything man touches... Every aspect of human civilization is infected with sin. So we hear a lot of talk today from Christians in particular about redeeming the culture. But according to Revelation, God's intent is not to redeem the culture, but to judge it, destroy it, and remake it. It is good for God to kill the disease in preparation for making all things new. The second reason given by the saints as to why God is to be praised for his judgment of Babylon is because she has spilled the blood of the saints. The judgment of Babylon is God's vengeance upon human society and human culture for the blood of his servants. It is God's answer finally to the cry of the martyrs which we read in Revelation 6 and verse 10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? And we waited, and we waited, and we waited, and here, in Revelation 18 and 19, finally it's come. And now it's time to praise God for it. Babylon, fallen human civilization, has chewed up and spit out the saints of God from the very beginning. When Cain rose up and slew his brother Abel. Why? 1 John chapter 3, because his brother was righteous. And ever since, the blood of the martyrs have been crying out to God, just like Abel's blood cried up to him from the ground. It's hard to get all jazzed up about the glory of Rome or the glory of any human culture when our brothers and sisters are being slaughtered. Just like Jesus said when he wept over Jerusalem, another one of those harlot cities, according to Revelation 11.8. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Every city does that. Vengeance is coming, and when it does, the saints will rejoice. So the driving question behind this first point is, will you? Do you love the world? Now, I don't mean the people of the world. I'm not talking the John 3.16 kind of love of the world, like God so loved the world that He sent His Son. I'm talking about the 1 John 2.15 kind of love where the Apostle says, do not love the world or the things of this world. In fact, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that's the question of this text. Are you, in verses 9 to 19 of chapter 18, where you are going to weep and mourn when Babylon falls because your beloved has just been destroyed? Or are you with the great multitude of chapter 19 who rejoice and praise God because Finally, His righteousness has been vindicated and the blood of the saints has been avenged. What is your relationship to fallen human society? You cannot love both God and Babylon. You must choose your side and your affections will bear out your choice. So will you be among those who weep and mourn when Babylon falls? or among those who rejoice and give praise to God. The second description of the saints comes in the second scene, beginning in verse 6. Okay, The same great multitude who cried out in verses 1 to 3 cry out again this time, but now it's louder, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, and it is for a vastly different reason. Look with me beginning in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen are the righteous deeds of the saints." Now, just a quick note on translation. I want you to look down with me at verse 8. I'm not at all sure why the ESV includes the first half of verse 8 with what has come before in the cry of the saints. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, and not with the editorial comment that John adds at the end of verse 8 when he says that these Garments, the fine linen, are the righteous deeds of the saints. There's really no textual basis for doing so. So I think that the song of worship, the cry of worship, is in verses 6 and 7, and John's comment comes in in verse 8 as an explanation of what he is seeing. For the wicked, the consummation of history will result in the fiery judgment upon Babylon and all her citizens, verses 1 to 5. But for the righteous, for the saints, for you, if you're in Christ, by grace through faith, the consummation of history will bring about the wedding feast of the ages. The covenant relationship between God and His people is pictured as a marriage covenant between a bride and her bridegroom. And it has a long biblical precedent. 
I want to read for you four passages. You don't have to turn there. They'll be up here behind me. Four passages that develop this theme of a marriage covenant between Jesus Christ and His bride, His covenant people, His redeemed, us. Looking ahead to the new covenant, the Lord spoke through the prophet Hosea saying this, Hosea 2, 19 and 20, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Again, looking ahead to the eternal covenant of peace, the Lord promised through Isaiah, Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 8, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So the Old Testament developed this idea that there is coming a covenant relationship, there's coming a marriage between God and His people. Well then comes the last and greatest of the Old Covenant prophets, a man named John the Baptist, who spoke of the arrival of Jesus as the coming of the Bridegroom. For his bride. In John chapter 3, verse 29, John says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, speaking of himself, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly to hear the bridegroom's voice. There, this joy, then, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. John says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. All of his disciples were coming up to him in that, in that chapter, and they're all bent out of shape because disciples of John are going over to follow Jesus now. And John says, whoa, 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 this is as it should be. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom, and I have no greater joy than watching the bridegroom come and begin to collect his bride. Well, then comes Paul. And he makes this imagery explicit in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then he sums it up and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. But I am speaking of Christ and his church. So taken together, let me see if I can paint the whole picture. Genesis to Revelation. It was the Father's will from all eternity before ages began that his son should have a bride in order that their love for one another and their joy in one another might result in and redound to His glory. But the Father did not choose a bride that was worthy of His Son, for none existed. But rather, in order to magnify the glory of His grace and mercy, the Father chose for His Son a bride that was filthy with sin, wretched 
stained, unfaithful to the core. That's what the book of Hosea is all about. The sin and unfaithfulness of Israel to her covenant husband and the Lord's unfailing faithfulness to her in spite of it all. And then in the fullness of the time, God sent forth His Son in order to redeem His bride at the cost of His blood. He bought her. He paid the bride price by His death. And having secured her redemption, He rose again from the dead and He ascended into heaven. Now, in the ancient world, there was frequently a long delay between the securing of the engagement, the betrothal, and the actual wedding feast and consummation. During which time, during that delay, the bridegroom would build a home for he and his bride, generally on the family property. And finally, when all of his affairs were in order, when the place was prepared, does that sound familiar? When a place was prepared, he would return, he would gather his bride, and he would take her to the wedding supper and to the dwelling place that he had prepared for her. This is behind Jesus' statement to his disciples in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. When they were in despair because he was telling them, I'm going to depart from you. He gave them this promise, John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I have gone to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place for you I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also that's wedding language God chose a bride for his son in eternity past the son paid the bride price by his death he was then raised and ascended to the father's right hand in heaven to prepare a dwelling place with the promise that one day he would return to gather his bride to himself, to take her to be with him and dwell with him in everlasting covenant joy. But in the meantime, during the delay, the bride is not inactive. For the bridegroom has sent his spirit to prepare the bride and to make her ready by gathering her from every tribe and tongue and people and nation upon the face of the earth, by cleansing her of all of her iniquities, by adorning her with righteousness so that when he arrives, he will find a bride radiant and holy without spot or blemish prepared to meet her husband in the air. Which means that the task of the saints in this age is to prepare for the wedding day. About a month ago, Ashley was the matron of honor in the wedding of her college roommates. So we got a fresh look right around the time I was writing this sermon. We got a fresh look at the preparation process and it brought back a lot of memories. For the bride, that time of preparation takes two forms. From the day of engagement or betrothal, all of life is marked by a very distinct anticipation of the coming wedding day. In this case for Kelly... It consumed her thoughts. It commanded her affections. It captured all of her hopes and dreams and drew all of her hopes and dreams into this day. Everything in her life began to point ahead to the day. The day of the wedding. The day of the consummation of the covenant. 
The impending wedding becomes for the bride the pinnacle to which all of life is heading. And for the length of the engagement period, she is carried along. She is driven by the anticipation of that joy which awaits her at the coming of her bridegroom. Preparation also takes the form of beautification. A dress, fine linen, bright and pure, is selected. Fitness becomes something of an obsession as she tries to look her best. And on the day of the wedding with her hair and her makeup done, she puts on the dress that has been prepared just for her. And then there she stands at the back of the sanctuary behind the closed doors. And inside her future bridegroom awaits for that time when the doors will swing open and she will be presented in radiance and splendor to her bridegroom and come to meet him for the fullness of joy. The preparation period for the bride that is the church is no different. The period is marked this age. While the Lord, the bridegroom has gone to prepare a place for us, this age is marked by the anticipation of the coming day when we will finally meet Christ face to face. When our faith and our hope will be made sight and will be met by the experience of the fullness of joy. And this period is to be marked by beautification. The beautification of the saints as they pour out their lives in righteousness and holiness. We are to live our lives day by day making preparations for His coming by pursuing righteousness and putting to death sin. Both of these concepts are bound up into that phrase at the end of verse 7. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. During the period of betrothal, the saints have lived with this eager sense of anticipation of the coming day. It has remained our hope and our joy even throughout this long age of tribulation. And during this period of betrothal, the saints have arrayed themselves in the splendor of holiness by grace through faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, putting to death sin and walking in righteousness. And when the wedding day finally arrives, the bride will don her wedding gown, fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, don't let that last verse, we're in Reformation month, Heading towards Reformation Day, which, by the way, is going to be awesome, so invite all your friends. Don't let this verse knock you off your Reformed Protestant bearings. In the book of Revelation, the saints are shown to be clothed by both justification and by sanctification. The clothing of justification was found back in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 13. You remember? All of the great multitude are gathered around the throne there and they're dressed in white. And John says, what's going on here? One of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And John said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That's justification. Cleansed in the blood of Christ. 
The clothing of sanctification is found in chapter 19 and verse 8. It was granted to her. Okay, So it's still a work of grace by the power of the Spirit. It is still a gift of God's grace. It was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen, bright and pure which she was granted to clothe herself in is the righteous acts of the saints. So always justification and sanctification, never one without the other, always one sanctification built on top of the other justification. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, the saints will be clothed both in the righteousness of Christ and in the righteousness that has been wrought in them by grace through faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of creation on that day will marvel when the sons of God are revealed, even as the entire congregation stands when the bride makes her entrance into the sanctuary. So will creation stand and gasp at her radiance as she shines in the covenant love of her husband. But that appearance into the sanctuary will have to wait for Revelation 21. When the bride, the wife of the Lamb, comes down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. So the question of the second description is this. Are you making yourself ready for the wedding day? Because that's what the saints do. Are you going to have wedding garments? The saints live in an eager anticipation of that coming day. It consumes their thoughts and their commands their affections. So when was the last time that you meditated on the coming of your bridegroom? Does that thought, the coming of Christ, does that thought fill you with hope and joy or with fear and dread? And which emotions do you think are fitting of a bride? The saints make themselves ready by beautifying themselves. They cleanse themselves of iniquity, being washed by the water of the word. They put to death indwelling sin. They strive after holiness and righteousness and truth and integrity so that when the last day comes and all that is hidden is revealed, the inner beauty will shine with radiance for all to see. Are you getting ready for your husband? Are you preparing for the coming of the wedding day? Or are you spending this betrothal period off fornicating in Babylon? Because if you give yourself to the world in this age, you will fall with the world at the end of the age. But if you spend this age, this life, preparing for the wedding day, you will rejoice and exult and give God the glory with the great multitude when the bridegroom appears. So which one are you? Finally, we see in the last two verses that the saints prophesy of the testimony of Jesus. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And then John says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If you want just a foretaste, just a, just a little taste of heavenly glory, just look 
at the Apostle John's reaction to the angel who shows him these visions. John is so overwhelmed by the angelic being and the glory that he has just witnessed that he falls at the angel's feet in order to worship him. It was the irresistible impulse of his being to fall down in the face of such glory and begin to worship, but he is sharply and immediately rebuked because nothing, none, but the uncreated God is worthy of worship. Astonishingly, then, John makes the same mistake just four chapters later. Look with me at Revelation 22 and verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. John is so overcome by the glory of heaven that his immediate impulse is to worship, and he's just looking at the mirror of God's glory. Imagine what happens when one gazes straight upon the majesty on high. The final point I want to make actually comes from the angelic response in both 19.10 and 22.9. In both cases, the angel says he is simply a fellow servant with John. And of all the brothers, that's you, who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Which then prompts John to add the comment that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So evidently all the brothers have the spirit of prophecy. What does that mean? Well, in chapter 22 and verse 9, the meaning of the angelic response is clear. The angel says, I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. See, the angels of heaven must not be worshipped because they are both, the angels of heaven and we, the saints on earth, are merely servants of the testimony of Jesus. We are servants of the word. You remember the chain of revelation that was set out for us in Revelation 1 and then chapters 10 and 11? God gave the revelation to his son, who gave it to the angel, who gave it to John, who sent it to the church, who disseminates it to the world. You remember that? Well, then to worship an angel is to aim way too low in that chain of revelation. Angels and the church are merely co-servants of the testimony of Jesus and of the word of God. We're stewards of the revelation. And there you have the third description of the saints in this passage. The saints are prophets, speaking, testifying, prophesying to the testimony of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. The saints, all of them, are speakers of the word. They are witnesses, they are martyrs, they are prophets. The one thing they are never shown to be in the book of Revelation, is silent. Revelation 12, 11, they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word, the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their lives even when faced with death. So I have three questions for you. Question number one. The saints rejoice 
at the righteous judgment of God upon the wicked city of Babylon. Because they don't love the world. They don't love the things of the world. They love the Father. Are you a saint? Question number two. The saints prepare themselves for the wedding day. They live with an eager sense of anticipation. They beautify themselves with righteous deeds performed by grace through faith in the power of the Spirit so that when the bridegroom arrives, they are found ready, filled with joy and arrayed in the splendor of holiness. Are you a saint? Are you preparing yourself? Are you making yourself ready? Question three. The saints prophesy. They proclaim the testimony of Jesus even unto death. They are not silent. Indeed, they cannot be because the spirit of prophecy rests upon them. Are you a saint? Are you a speaker of the testimony of of Jesus. So this is the way the saints are described in Revelation 19, 1-10. Are you a saint? My Father, I pray that you will make the answer to that question clear in every heart of every person here. Lord, the saints, we understand, are on a journey. I'm not implying that there is perfect love for God and perfect preparation in holiness and righteousness and perfect prophesying and speaking of the truth. But in all three of those areas, there's something. By the Spirit, if we've been born again, our love For the world has been broken. Its hold on us has been broken. And a new affection for God and His holiness and His righteousness and the vindication of His honor has been aroused. There is within us, if we've been born again, if we're a saint, there is within us a desire for righteousness and and an increasing hatred of sin to where we're broken by sin and we desire holiness. And it's not perfect, but it's there. And if we've been born again, the spirit of prophecy resides within us and upon us. And we cannot be silent. We must speak. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the saints are those whose heart is full of the spirit. So God, make it clear. Am I a saint. And Lord, I pray that you would so arrest and command our affections that the coming of our bridegroom would fill us with an anticipation of hope and joy that sustains us through the trials and the tribulations of this life. As we take just a moment to meditate and pray. If you're here this morning and you're not a saint,
and that has been clear to you. Your life has been one of the love of the world and not of the Father. Your life has been marked and characterized by unrepentant sin and not by the pursuit of righteousness. The eager anticipation of the coming of Christ. And you've never really known the testimony of Jesus, much less spoke it. Then my admonition to you this morning in the quietness of this moment is to call out to Christ in repentance, in faith. Ask Him to make you His own. Ask Him to call you by name. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and confess to Him your faith and your hope in Him. I believe you're the bridegroom. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose again from the dead and I believe that you're coming again and I want to be among those who are ready. Make me ready. Confess, repent, renew, restore, recommit. Lord, take these prayers, hear them, and answer for your glory and for the magnification of your grace in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name.